This is Greg. This is Isan. And this is Paul. And this is Film Addicts, where we go and take a look at the AFI's 100 Greatest American Films of All Time. AFI stands for American Film Institute. We're going to go ahead and go down the list 100 to 1 and talk in depth about each of these awesome films. For those of you who don't know, the AFI list is a list that was devised, uh, I think originally, well, uh, the list that we're looking at was originally devised in 1998, where everyone in the film industry voted on a top 400 list to get the ultimate top 100, and that list was revised again 10 years later in 2007, and it's this list that we're using for the podcast. Ben-Hur, released in 1959, holds the record for most Oscars won in a single Academy Awards with 11. It won 11 out of 12. It's tied with Titanic, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. But it held the distinction of most Oscars for a very, very long time, almost 40 years, 38 years, I think, something like that, before Titanic matched it. It stars Charlton Heston, probably the most famous person in the movie, It's filmed in widescreen, which is kind of an interesting fact for the time as well. Very rare. Oftentimes, or not often, but some people disagreed with that decision as well, which is weird because it's an epic movie. You would think a widescreen format would be better. In some cases, people argued that it has too much wasted space on the sides. I didn't get that feeling at all. I thought that the widescreen was interesting. In 1997, when AFI first released its list, this was number 72 on the list, and it's now dropped to number 100, which is why we are starting today. Last thing I guess I'd say about it is it's directed by William Wyler. Probably, unless you're a big film buff, you might not have heard of him, but he is one of only three directors to win three Best Director Oscars. Frank Capra won three, John Ford won four. Winning three is you know incredible accomplishment for a director. So even though you haven't heard of him, he is uh, very, very famous, just a little bit older. And for those of you who haven't seen the film that we're doing today, Ben-Hur, just briefly, uh, so Charlton Heston plays a Palestinian Jew named Judah Ben-Hur, and he is essentially, for the, for the film, what he does is he's battling the Roman Empire in the time of Christ. His actions send him and his family into slavery, but a, he eventually encounters Jesus, and that changes everything for him. The, the movie follows Heston as he comes back from slavery and, and meets his rival in a very famous chariot race and rescues his suffering family. Let's start with initial impressions. Isan, let's start with you. What what was your high level? On had, had you seen the movie before? Oh, definitely. I've seen the movie before. How, so many, I, how many times? How many times? Probably three times, but I haven't seen it in maybe over five years. Mm-hmm. I just remember the feeling of how epic the movie is, how grand the movie is. Even when I watched it again this time, I was watching it really closely, especially for this podcast. I'm trying to pick up on small things. But when I'm watching it now, I can't stop but feel goosebumps when I start the movie because I'm watching something that I feel and most people agree, even if they like it or dislike it, is such a huge piece of film history. This is like the first big textbook physics that Albert Einstein got, I feel like. Not that I'm Albert Einstein, but this is like the great, great movie that I first saw first and I just have remembered at least the major themes of it forever. This was my first time watching the movie. I guess I could also equate it to that big textbook that you get in physics class in that you don't really want to read it or watch it. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I mean, a big, to be, <laughs> to articulate it, my feelings are, eh, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much how I felt. We'll talk more in depth about the movie, but I, I had some high expectations, 11 Oscars, Culturally, you know, considered one of the best movies of all time. I had some higher expectations, probably in general weren't met. It's so just... much blasphemy. <laughs> so much blasphemy. I don't know. I did. I, did, I, I enjoyed the film. It, it was it was long. Um, and the only thing I knew about it going into it was the famous chariot race. So this is your first time seeing it, right? First Paul? time yeah. seeing it. Yep. I was looking forward to the chariot race and everything else was totally new to me. You know that uh, there's like a famous saying for people that aren't like really into the movie that should have ended at the chariot race. (laughs) (laughs) It should have. That's a good point. That's a famous line. A lot of people like if you go online, you look at famous reviews or even if you just look at a famous review and you go down the comments, there's always going to be at least 10 people saying should have ended at the chariot race. That's just a really common thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have been okay with that. Of course, with our pea brains over here. Paul and I are like, yeah, we're great. End this shit. Yeah. Action scene and done. 
<laughs> and I do want to clarify, I don't think it's the worst movie in the world by any means. It just was, when you have high expectations, by, by, it was a letdown. Probably. By hour three, I was definitely very antsy. Yeah. Um, I'd run out of popcorn. You know, <laughs> come on. Admittedly, they did have an intermission, as a lot of films oh, in the 50s not, used not in, to do. Not in mine, though. Yours? Not in my version of it, or at least what I watched. Are you so, serious? Yeah, there is an intermission, but on some of the DVDs or when you're doing streaming, they cut it out. Oh, so did yeah. you have the overture at the beginning where it's just like yes. four minutes of music? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Did have that. Okay. Now, that was something that I've seen a, other, a few other movies from the 50s, and that seems to have been a lot more common in film. I haven't seen one of that, you know, an overture, intermission in a film in a long time. Well, usually it's for musicals, yeah, okay. and it, it really gives you that feeling that it's a play. I mean, it's really long, like mm-hmm. it is a play. And I think probably a reason why I didn't like it that much is I feel like this movie takes a lot of time to set the scene, where in, when you enter this movie, you've got 30, 45 minutes before like really impactful things, and I don't feel like they're using their time particularly well in the beginning to develop your characters. They are, but I think there's a lot. I don't want to say they're wasted scenes. I, I did say wasted. That's that's not the right term. I would just say convoluted scenes, like mm-hmm. scenes that have a little bit more in there that they probably could pull out. And then later on in the movie, there are scenes that I feel like, well, we can get to that later, but there are scenes that I feel like should have been touched on in far greater detail and then just aren't. You know, I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about that now or not but to me it's and i feel like they take a long time to set the movie and then when judah kind of becomes the son of arius it's like instantaneous you know i mean they're just like oh and and all of a sudden i'm like wait how did you do a 180 here and then later in the movie when he then rejects the name of arius it means nothing to me because you accepted it so quickly right and if you if you had you know changed that or if they had changed that and shown you the progression of, okay, well, how did you change from Judah Ben-Hur to taking on the name of Arius? It would have then meant so much more later in the movie when he rejects the name to well, me. That was one of my irks with the movie is I had a really hard time with just the, the concept of time in the film. Until you hear from after he's been in, he's been rowing in the boat that he's been doing that for three years and there's an extra year before he goes back to where his mother and sister are. I had no fucking clue, like, how long this this span of time in the film was. And I think that kind of ties in. Like, they, they spend a lot of time inordinately in certain scenes that they probably didn't need to. And my girlfriend, who was watching it with me, said, there's a lot of filler in this movie. But I think she tends to agree with you. It was a long movie. I guess I would a little bit, too. I don't know. Do you feel like it's the 50s? It's a victim of the kind of the 50s style, Eason? Or do you not feel like it? it's long and that the... I think it is long. I mean, obviously, a movie that's over three and a half hours is long. I feel like it's very obvious to me that it's coming from a novel. It came from an 1880s novel, so I think it suffers mm-hmm. more from 1880s novelization than it does from 19 late 1950s films. Because, like, literally three years later, Lawrence of Arabia comes out, and that movie's quick-paced the whole time, and it's just about as long. Okay. I think it has more to do with the novelization and it had three different writers writing it so different when you're writing a book or you're writing a play or a story or a screenplay you're forcing usually there's a push and a pull there's a pull his pull goal is to save his family the push is that he needs to survive and he wants to get there in time does that make sense yeah and you usually have different themes that are pushing and pulling you toward that. And when you have different writers, people are emphasizing different things. Even when you're just talking about dialogue or music or directing, you are thinking one scene is doing something and it should be powerful in its own right. But when it's not connected to the other ones, it's not so much. I think it's a good point. I still don't know if that's an explanation for the length of the film and especially for I feel like those first 45 minutes are just like are kind of senseless scenes where you're introducing all these characters, which in this movie, there really aren't very many. We got a dozen characters Mm -hmm. max in this movie. It's not going to take that long to kind of introduce them all. The most relevant scenes in the beginning certainly are the scenes between Masala and uh, and uh, Judah and Judah. Wait, I gotta, I gotta throw in. The, I think the fact that this comes from a novel is a good reason for all the wasted space. I think he sounds right, though. Have you? I mean, any movie where you transition from a book, they're usually cutting a ton of stuff out, and they obviously didn't do that here. 
Like The Martian, you said yeah, recently. Yeah. Of recent memory. Of yeah. I think it just would be a good idea. I mean, another reason that the movie is so long is because they have the whole... It's called Ben-Hur and then A Tale of Christ. So if you removed a lot of the Christ aspects, you the movie would be shorter. And I think you would have a more action-packed focused on this one man's story instead of trying to compare the two the whole time. And you would lose some time in that there's other little things about just like 50s or older movies in this case that were kind of upsetting to me not (laughs) not upsetting but like just little things like uh you know and this happens in every great movie so i'm probably just being nitpicking but he gets off this boat after being on there for however many years he finally gets freed and he's still wearing that ring from esther that she gave him earlier on and i'm like you didn't take the slave's ring away in like four years. Like doesn't even make like, that's not even plausible to me. Like, okay. And then like, then like little special effects kind of things are like false acting things to me as well. Like he's on the boat as well. He gets whipped at one point. He just like, doesn't move. It's just like, it doesn't even affect him, which you can say like, Oh, he's fighting against it. Or like, Oh, he's like that strong or like whatever. But it's, it's like, no, you got, you got whipped and you're not even like flinching at all. So little things that are, just being nitpicky about the movie, not substantial contributions or, or problems at all. To me, I think that when I was watching this and when I was trying to determine you know, my thoughts on this movie, I needed to look at this as if I was watching it in 1959. Yeah. To me, this at the time, this seems very much like a Michael Bay movie of today where <laughs> it's like huge special effects and it's a huge production and it's great. But guess what? We're probably not going to remember in my opinion, we probably won't remember Michael Bay movies in 40 years. We'll be like, okay, your special effects are, you know, kind of not stood the test of time. And I think, to a certain extent, with the exception of the chariot race, I would say the special effects don't really stand the test of time on this one. The boat kind of fight is cool, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't wow you like the chariot race does. It's kind of like, yeah. I think I think it's safe to say that no Transformers movies will be on the AFI list anytime soon. <laughs> no, but, Ninja, but Ninja Turtles will be. So. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and, and I actually the your comments about the fifties, the fact that this is made in the fifties, I I kind of had that same issue. Some stuff stood out to me, and that's I realize that I don't have any context or the right context for this film because I can't go back back and watch it at the time. But like things like the lighting of the actors faces that i noticed like every shot is lighting up their face full on you're getting tons of light even if he's in a dark room cuz we got to show the actors faces you know it's charlton heston we got to show it and then he's 36 he looks like he's 58 in the movie to me i feel like he looks so old i was like charlton heston you've looked so old from the beginning of time he looked great his body looked great but his face to me i was like you have always been an old guy Apparently. Yeah, he has that face. I think it, it's just like a classic look. Like some people look young forever. He looks old forever. I mean, John Wayne looked the same from the time he was 30 until he passed away. Yeah, very yeah. similar. The 50s stuff, though, I I mean, some of the props are not so good. The armor, some of the swords, they seem very fake. Mm-hmm. Like you made it out of your mom's tinware. I don't know. But the costumes, I think, are great. I mean, they won... An Academy Award for the costumes. I think the robes look really good. Yeah. Like when they're wearing them, the chariot uh, uniforms that they're wearing, even the chic, the Romans look very Roman to me. Like you accept them instantly, even without them saying right away. And the colors of all that seem to be Yeah, the colors really good. And the sets look incredible as well. Yeah, the sets are huge sets too. Very sensational. I mean, they dug that chariot race arena like out of a quarry it took them more than a year to like dig that out oh, I didn't know like that. that's like a real place and the movie this is one of the things i want to talk about i mean it has the 50s elements but it has a lot of i know it's probably not real authenticity but to me it feels authentic even if it's not which i think is the goal of movies mm-hmm. that it's being filmed in where it's supposed to be taking place you feel that desert the lady that plays esther she's from palestine I know I really liked the feel of it. Like those guys, they seem so Roman. Even their dialogue and the way Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd are talking, the dialogue seems ancient to me. I could totally believe that that's how Romans talked if they were speaking English. It's almost like I'm. some people say Charlton Heston doesn't speak English very well. But to me, in this movie, it's as if he knew Latin and they're translating it as it's talking. Like all the sentences are so powerful. Like even the conjugations of verbs have like an old timey feel to me. 
From Charlton yeah. Heston? Yeah, yeah. See, I was getting a feel. I thought Charlton Heston was really stoic in this, and, and sometimes certainly purposefully. But I thought that sometimes when he shouldn't be stoic, he was. And I, so I guess I didn't feel, I thought that the best person was Jack Hawkins. Or no, not Jack Hawkins. Uh, the uh, the guy that's with Stephen, Stephen Boyd. Boyd. Yeah, yeah. De- I agree. So best guy in the movie. I, I thought he was the best guy. Charlton Heston to me, he wins best actor. You know, maybe rightfully so, at least for a, a career's work. But I mean, he certainly had more famous movies afterwards as well. But he deserves to get a best actor Oscar. But he seems very one dimensional to me in this movie. I could agree that he seems one dimensional when he's speaking. That's very true. But his body language to me is really good. It mirrors everything that's happening in the film. How straight. It seems like he's wearing almost heels in the beginning of the movie when he's the prince of Judea. Like he's the most wealthy person in Judea. And he stands so tall and he's so much taller than Stephen Boyd. And he's so straight. And even when he throws the spear, his outreaching arm is so straight and then when he's on the boat he's like much taller than everyone in the film like you notice it but then he's like slumping on the boat slumping in the chains and he looks just like everyone else mm. when he, before he was like this prince and then when he re-emerges back from rome in masala's office how straight he is again a really good scene maybe the best directing of uh Weiler because he didn't even actually direct the chariot scene like a different guy directed the chariot scene I'd read scene. that too who was it though I can't remember I I can't remember I'll uh, look it up real quick yeah. but uh when his m- sister and mother contract leprosy and they're living in like the leper colony mm-hmm. and they don't want him to see them like this they want him to believe that he's dead but Esther is like Ben Hur's friend this woman is bringing his family food and she lied to him and Ben-Hur sees them and he hides behind this rock and he is just crushed that they're alive, that he cannot help them, that he almost wishes they were dead instead of how they are. And he lays against that rock like he's dying and they can't see him. And that's in the scene and you can see them coming up out of the leper colony. I think you're right. His dialogue acting may not be so good, but his body movements are so subtle and so powerful to me and his rage his eyes when he's staring at uh the admiral when they're saying attack speed ramming speed and everyone around him is falling and he has that laser eye focus like what did you say to me the other day paula hate keeps a man alive i yeah. can feel that hate like burning through the screen i think his acting was great on the boat but you've seen where he's like crouched behind a rock i thought that was classic 50s overacting mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, just, I'm going to show everything I can possible. And it's, I don't know. I thought it was a little much. I actually noticed that, mm-hmm. that it was, I thought it was overdone. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, I could agree that he's very good at being angry. I mean, I think that <laughs> you got to question Get a little. Get your hands it, off me. Yeah. yeah. Is yeah. that is that even acting for Charlton Heston or is he just the angriest actor in Hollywood at the time? They're like, this. Oh, you'll be great. Yeah. Just act angry. Just be yourself. Somebody took his donut back. As long as so. I'm feeling it, I I love it. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. no, I thought uh, he's not eating any donuts with body like that. He he is better. <laughs> it's true. He looks phenomenal. He's he is better uh, in those scenes. The scenes that I struggle with, and I wonder if it was purposeful. And this might make me think that he's a little bit. He does a better job than than maybe I initially thought. Was the kind of love story between Esther and Judah. So. I think Esther does a very good job of interacting with Judah, showing that she really loves him. And I believe it from her side. Judah, like, he just doesn't care. And even, like, the kiss they have at the beginning is, like, I know it's supposed to be forced. It's supposed to be, like, ah, this is, like, bad. We shouldn't be kissing. But it's, like, it just doesn't really seem even believable, right? And it's and then at the end, at the very end of the movie, when she's, like, you know, basically like throwing herself at him like, I love you. It's like one of the last scenes in the movie. And he's just like, uh, and he like walks up the stairs, goes, sees his mom and, you know, sister. And it's like, it's like, eh. he, 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 his interaction with Esther is sort of the only point in the movie where I could say like romantic love takes a place rather than like family love, which has an enormous presence throughout as his whole purpose is trying to get back to his mother and his sister. But this, it's really the, it was the, chance where i thought we could see a romantic relationship form and i thought it was kind of disappointing and i think it was on charlton heston's 
is it possible that that was intentional and I'm just missing something you think? I think part, at least the middle portion where he doesn't care is very intentional because she even says to him at one point, you don't care about me. You don't care about any of this. All you care about is your hate. Like it's a disease. Like you're obsessed with it and you care about nothing else. The lack of his romantic interest in her could, of course, come back to the heavy theme that a lot of people portray or even if it is inside of it is almost like the homosexuality between Masala and Judah Ben-Hur. Huge. It's huge. I mean, I I had taken uh, an LGBT uh, studies class in college, and I did my presentation on gays in film, and, and in my research I kind of under, or I, you know, talked about Ben-Hur a little bit, but I hadn't even seen it at the time. I just sort of discussed it. And I had forgotten that, really, until I watched that, just like the opening scenes, I especially the those interactions between Masala and, and Judah are just so, and the, the things they say are seem to be so apparent to me where he's, I told you I'd come back. And then I never thought you would. It's just like, uh, okay. And very sexual, very sexual to me. And then after all these years, still close. And then in every way, I hope so. Like, <laughs> What, what yeah. like, bad porno am I watching? And then they drink with their hands intertwined. You know, it's it seems very prevalent, which I would say you could argue at least now his time has passed. Could be a, a pro for the movie. Yeah, right? even if it's not there, if it is there, I still think the bond between those two men and the bond that the actors are making is very real and very powerful. Whether it's yeah. sexual or not doesn't really affect me in any way. It's very important to the story yeah. too as well. I mean, it, it shows you can understand then how this betrayal of his friend then means so much more. Yeah, I mean it really deepens the wound. I just think Stephen Boyd, the guy that is Masala, he's the best actor in the movie, like we talked about. He his hatred is so powerful. His he has the same obsession. And that Esther talks to Ben Hur about it. Like, you have the same obsession of Masala. Are you gonna let it destroy you? Like it pretty much destroyed Masala. Can I comment on something that you previously said? I think we kind of skipped over because it, it was such a good point. Yeah. But I think we were we went back and talked about the, the kind of gay themes. You had said that Charlton Heston, Judah has this like burning hatred throughout the movie. And I think that seems to be like in direct conflict with what I was seeing, which was Judah as more of a Jesus figure, which mm. I think that you didn't get that as much. And maybe I'm wrong. I, I certainly don't feel like that as the that I'm 100% right on that. Uh, maybe I was just making connections where they shouldn't be. To me, Judah isn't an angry enough character. And his actions aren't angry enough. If these things happen to you, you are going to start killing everybody. Even if it's your old friend. It doesn't really matter. I mean, if somebody's taking everything you have, making you a slave, taking your mother and your sister, like if they're ruining everything in your life, when you come back, you're going to be a nutcase. You're not going to be as, I would say, Jesus-esque and compassionate to a certain extent that he is. Now, he's not compassionate, but he's also not so vengeful that I would expect. So to me, that was sort of why I started to be like, well, is he meant to be a Jesus figure and that these terrible things happen? He's turning the other cheek and he's just ignoring it. What do you guys think? I I think that's just... I get, maybe I shouldn't call it a failing of the film, but a difference like between a 1950s film and a film of today. They just didn't illustrate his hatred enough. I don't think the intention was to make him a Jesus figure because he interacts with Jesus and Jesus actually turns him into a good person, right? He has that consuming hatred that doesn't really go away until Jesus comes along. And my personal opinion is this, the way that they did the film, it doesn't really drive home how pissed off he is today. Although in the 50s, maybe it did. I don't know. To me, I think he is very angry. I just think that he's locking his anger behind stoicism so that he remains sane enough to complete his mission. Mm. Just if you have so much hate and you have this one goal, it's either going to make you crazy or you're going to lock it up and focus. Those are kind of your two options. That's a good point. Yeah. And so you didn't you didn't think of it as a Jesus, as no, a Jesus thing. I thought it more as Judah Ben-Hur is the ultimate, not sinner, but the person that's been sinned against, you know, like if he hits you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek and that Ben-Hur is doing the exact almost opposite of what Jesus would be teaching people to do. 
to remain peaceful, to give out forgiveness, to have mercy, things like that. And that Ben-Hur is exemplifying all these things that you should not be doing, even with the best of reasons. And that finally, in the end, when they are doing even worse to Jesus than what had been done to Ben-Hur, even still Jesus is following the straight path. And then Ben-Hur sees that maybe he should be doing the same. It's a good point. I mean, he is like drinking that water. Like it's almost like he has a taste of this like rebirth when all the people are going to the hill to the mountain, you know, to see Jesus. Yeah, and he, yeah. He turns and chooses revenge. You I know, think it's instead. a juxtaposition comparison rather than a that they're could, the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can see that. But then it to me earlier, at least one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which we'll talk about my favorite scene in the movie later. If it hadn't been that scene, I would have said that my favorite scene in the movie was. The interaction between Arius and Ben-Hur after the boat fight when Arius is attempting, things have gone bad, and Arius is now attempting to commit suicide. He'd rather kill himself than to, you know, lose all of these things that he has. He, on the boat, is questioning Ben-Hur about, like, you know, why are you even, like, doing this? Like, what's the big deal? It's been four years or whatever the timeline is at the time. You know, it's terrible. And, and I think that, that it has this, and he even talks about God too, because Judah is saying like, I believe because I believe that there's a God and there's like this path that I'm going to take, right? And, and there, he's watching me. So the person that has nothing believes so deeply in something more. And the person that has everything believes nothing, you know, that there is no God, that my God is an emperor or whatever. And as soon as things go badly, he tries to kill himself and Judah prevents him. It's almost like, showing you or the movie is is seemingly trying to say that you need to be when even when times are bad that a belief in a higher power is the answer is what you should be doing so i got i and then i think that is why i had started to begin to associate judah as this like jesus character because of probably substantially because of that scene as well as many others too yeah no that's a really solid point i get where you're coming from but i don't think that i mean why do you think they named him judah and I'm not, for disclaimer, I'm certainly by no means like this religious expert in any means, you oh, know, in any way. Yeah, so. I don't think any of us are. Yeah. But that's a disclaimer on, on the podcast, I guess. I mean, the, the fact that his name is Judah, like, that was in the back of my head the entire time, particularly once you introduce Jesus. Like, oh, this guy's name is Judah? What's going to happen here? And it, that was something else that I found interesting. Is like, this is a film that's kind of a side story of sorts. Are you talking, you think his name is, like, Judas, like yeah. the guy. Yeah, see, yeah. I was I wasn't thinking that at all. I was thinking his name was Judah, like Judea, like he is mm. the ultimate Jew. Mm. Like he is representing the Jewish people. I mean, it's very obvious to me when he, they ask him what his number is and it's 41. I just think that's so symbolic. Of a Bible verse or of what? Well, because 40 years in the desert, it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And on the 41st year, on the 41st day, you will be set free. And uh -huh. he is number 41. And the day he is asked his number is the day they do not put the chains on him. The day that his boat is crashed and the day that he is saved. I think you're he, right. I'm, it's so obvious and I didn't even notice it. I, I, I remember thinking, like, why is 41? It's got to be relevant. I was looking for it. And I still couldn't figure it out. So, I mean, that's, I think you're 100% right on that. He that's just, great. He just follows the path of representing all the Jewish people, like in the Bible, in Egypt, in those times. And he even goes on to represent the Jewish people. Like when the sheik gives him that star of David, yeah. you know, race for your people. And it's not only that he's racing for his people, he says, race for your people and mine. And I think that the religious themes in this movie are not so much Christianity themes. I mean, William Wyler was Jewish himself. He made, he's the director of this movie, like the architect behind it. It's not so much religion is great or it's that believing is great and that tolerance is great and that working together is great. Not necessarily that Christianity or Judaism or the Roman pantheon is the ultimate and you should kill everyone else or hate everyone else. Like the sheik says, for your people and mine. And at this point, it's so ancient. Islam is in the religion. Christianity is in a religion. So the, it's so amazing to me to see like this arab and this jewish guy best friends helping each other it's just so representative of what i would like the world to be more like today mm. and what's so crazy is that this is 59 like the seven day war hasn't happened like the attack in munich haven't happened like 9 11 hasn't happened 
it just it's a very wishful thinking and i really like those religious themes that believe in something and be nice to each other like all the core elements that judaism islam buddhism christianity they all have like the same sort of commandments yeah when was uh when was israel founded I mean, this could. So this, it was, it's after Israel was founded, I think, in like, like it's after so World War II. So okay. the British mandate of Palestine, like, becomes Israel, and then they have, like, the Exodus. Okay. So it's after Israel, at least. And so there's yeah. at least a certain I'm amount of com- sure. So it could be, you know, then very intentional, right? At, at the time, right? That's a really good point, Eason. I, I kind of watched it and took it at face value with just a lot of Christian themes, but you're totally right. There's a lot more to it there. I, I did want to ask you guys about this one, though, kind of speaking of the Christian or just the religious themes in general. So today, especially with, you know, your comic book movies and, and continuing storylines, side stories or, side, you know, getting a fleshed out character of someone in a particular universe that you're familiar with is very popular now. Was that something you think was popular then? Because I, I, I took this as like, OK, Christianity Everyone in the 50s is familiar with it. You're familiar with the story. You're familiar with Jesus. So let's tell a side story that's related to that. And that that way, it's that much more relatable to everybody. Well, there were a lot of religious movies at the time. Like he was, Charlton Heston was in the Ten Commandments not that many years Mm. before. The greatest story ever told was also at this point. I just think that this movie, it's almost like using Jesus as like a guise, so that people would see it and like see the Christianity themes. But really, I think the major themes of religion are just believe in something like do what you want to do, be nice to each other, like work with each other. Right. Even that work with each other theme comes back again when his uh, slave, the merchant guy with the beard, mm-hmm. his legs are broken by Masala in the prison and he can't walk. Yet he meets like another like pagan guy with like a shaved head who cannot talk. And yet he, that guy carries him, and together yeah. they are one great person, yep. even though they are totally different, totally different religions. That theme, and just like the sheik helps Ben-Hur, and they are totally different religions. And that the enemy is the Romans. Like when the sheik goes in to talk to Masala to take bets on the chariot race, he says, well, how about four to one? And then Masala says, the exact ratio between a Roman and a Jew. And he says, or an Arab. And then Hugh Griffith does such a good job to, like, hide his hurt, you know? Like, they're just, like, insulting him, but he knows he's going to get them later. But his Arab friend that's there, like, wants to kill these guys, like, instantly, even though he's surrounded by, like, 100 people. The Romans are just such Nazis. And it's, like, to me, it's, like, so symbolic that they are. Like, they do the salute. Like, they all wear the same uniform. They're all, like, half-naked white guys. They're just getting rubs from, like, different ethnicities of people. Like, they give and take and they conquer everything, and they insult the Jews, they insult the Arabs, and they say, Caesar has real power, Masal says at one point, real power on earth. Just like you, you could just like replace Roman with Nazis and Caesar with Hitler, and you like, and you don't even have to replace Jew, it's just Jew and Jew. Like, it's the exact same words. They just move into other territories yeah. and just take them over. You know, yeah. they say, oh, it won't be a warm welcome, but I promise you it'll be a quiet one. Yeah. You know, it's just like exactly moving into Poland or moving in, you know, wherever, so... Yeah. Very, very similar. I didn't notice it at all until, you know, you had brought it up. Yeah. I think it's a great point. I, I don't know how I didn't notice it. Maybe because it's three and a half hours and I'm doing <laughs> nothing. I'm just like, oh, God, you guys are losing me. Because another thing that I think is maybe a detriment to the movie as well is I think, with the exception of the chariot race, which maybe we can talk about or transition into it right now. Yeah. But I think that this movie actually lacks a true climax to the movie. That's a huge weakness to me because the the most climactic part is the cherry race probably. And I don't really feel like we get to the end and there's like something that's building and building and building. And it really, it doesn't really, there's no climax. And I, I mean, did you guys feel like there's a climax that I'm, you know, maybe missing? I think that it, you know, you said that there's arguments that should have ended at the chariot race. Like, yeah, the, that would, I think that, chariot race is the climax because the whole pull of the movie is to destroy masala to get revenge i just think if you guys aren't feeling the hate if you're not feeling like that's the climax like they're not doing the best job emphasizing that that is a climax but then you have another like hour yeah right so i mean what like what's going on for that hour certainly that's the wrap-up of the jesus yeah it becomes very religious i mean it's the crucifixion it's like yeah but Masala says that it's not if the race isn't over as he's dying, right? And then you get so 
the protagonist has gotten his revenge and we're telling a story about this revenge and you get the rest of it. You go, oh, it's not over. This should have, it was the climax, I think, but puts a little emphasis on the fact that revenge isn't necessarily what you want it to be. Yeah, I think you're right. right. I think that gives more weight to when I was talking about how Ben-Hur is like the representative of the person that's had all these sins committed against them. Mm -hmm. And then even when the climax comes, it's not the end. The race is not over. You still have to live the rest of your life like this. And I think the teachings of Jesus is what continues the rest of the movie. I just think it's very subtle. It's not a movie, movie, blockbuster finish. But then even when they have that conversation, he walks out into the arena. They have that shot from behind. It's very Jesus-like of him. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is the... I don't know why. At first, I thought it was because he was the Jesus figure of the movie. Kind of seemed to think, well, maybe he necessarily isn't in this case. At that point, I think he... It's just a confusion of religion because even when the guy presiding over the race puts the like the leaves on his head, he says, you are their God now. Like he I mean, that would give I think it's like he is their Jesus or their God at that point because he's thrown down the enemy in their face for all of them. And he's this grand tall person and they show him like he's God. It just representing false idols almost at that point. Totally. Hmm. Like the Romans are all focused on a single human individual who is the top or is the God. Yeah. Even in Masala before the race, he says, Jupiter, give me strength. And it's like, this is the joke. Like he doesn't (laughs) believe that. Like his tone of voice is obviously is so true. And the other Romans, like Quintus Arius, he goes, your God will not save you. Neither will all of mine. Do we want to talk about the uh, the cherry, climax, the cherry race? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, the cherry race. No, I mean, it's the best. It's so good. It is the best part of the movie to me. It is the most Michael Bay of the movie to me, where it's just this huge. But it's it's so much better because now we can CGI. We would CGI that arena. The set, the fact they built it is incredible. Was it you? You said I think you told me yesterday, right? Seventy horses or like. Are, no, someone else, like, multiple horses, like, died during during the filming of this. Yeah, really? They, yeah, it was just really rough. Like, they hired so many specialists for the horses. They got so many horses for, like, the Andalusians, the Lipizzan, like, Hungarian horses. And everything is so big in it. Like, they took a whole year to chisel that thing out of rock. They used to hire extras. There's, like, 1,500 extras. And they used to turn away thousands of people because people were so poor. Like, they wanted to be in the movie to make, like, whatever money they could. So they had, like, riots outside the sets. Like, it it is a real thing. And they added uh, where they ride around really slow because Weiler wanted to make sure that they got it because they didn't used to do that. That's not authentic. But just to show it off that it is real. Like, there's no CGI. Like, like, in The Lord of the Rings, like you always talk about, Greg, like, they're just, like, slaying, like, 10,000 orcs. You're like, I guess that's cool. But eventually... You just become glazed over because it's you know it's just like a one bunch of ones and zeros. It like looks like a magic eye where it's yeah. like you're looking at it and then you're like, well, if you look close enough, something pops out. But really, it's just like a gibberish like blur of orcs that are dying. Like, but this is so big. Everything about this movie is big. It was the most expensive movie of the time. They spared no expense. MGM was going to go under. So they spent every dollar they had to build this movie and blow it out. They were going out with a bang, just hoping, stretching that it would work. They filmed on location. They paid the director like anything they wanted. They would give them anything to make it. Why not just one horse? Why not two horses? Four horses, baby. Like, why not just have three racers, eight, ten horse racers? Like, everything is huge. Why not just make it a small stadium? Boom, big stadium. Like, they were going all out. And you can feel that bigness, that grandeur in that race. You definitely can. It's it's by far the most impactful scene, or not maybe not impactful scene. It's definitely the most exciting scene in the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's where my favorite scene is as well. My favorite individual shot is when, and you don't see this in older movies very often, where Charlton Heston he's behind in the race, and there's that scene where you're following the chariot from behind just slightly behind, almost like you're in the chariot and he's gaining ground and weaving in and out. That's like an incredible shot to have in 1959. That was like, I looked at that shot and I was like, that's a very cool shot. Like nowadays that would be a very cool shot and a hard shot to do, but it was just, 
super, super cool showing that like weaving in and out. I thought it was just, it was a really, really cool shot. In the, and that's, I would say my single favorite overall. I really like the interaction between Arius and after the boat fight, Arius and Jude after the boat fight for more, a more deeper meaning. But the single best shot to me is that. That was just so cool. The chariot race is so good with all the camera work they did. They had a totally different guy like direct it. Actually, one of the assistant directors for that part was 30-year-old 30 year, 30 year uh, Sergio Leone. Like he was there, like so. Like he got a lot of influence with, especially with the cinemascope, like the wide shots. They were using like Italian cars at the time, and they couldn't keep up with the horses, so they had to get a head start. <laughs> then they bought American like power cars, and even then they couldn't keep up with those four horses on the dirt. Crazy. Because they, they had so much power in all those scenes, and they actually used dynamite to like explode wheels when Masala's like spinners are coming up. And they even hired actors, like all those other racers that are in it, a lot of them are there. They had to hire actors that were expert horsemen. So they were like looking for people. And like Charlton Heston apparently was like already really good with horses, but they had another track that was exactly the same as the set outside where they like practiced and stuff like that. So much went into it. And actually, there's like this ratio of 263 to one. So for every like picture or frame of film that they have, they had 263 frames, and they only used one of them for that film. It is the largest filmed to use in a movie for any, like, set amount of film. And that's crazy. They must have filmed forever because it's like a 15-minute scene. They filmed yeah. months, months just for this. Very, very cool. I would say the most – another contributing factor, which we didn't talk about, is I would say that I think that this movie is reasonably predictable. Was this movie predictable in 1959? I don't know. But – Today, we've seen a lot of movies kind of in the same realm, predictable. The most unpredictable moment in the movie for me is when those people in the chariot race are just fucking falling off and getting trampled. And I was like, oh, God, like, that's very violent for 1959. Yeah, very violent and very unexpected, which just adds to my enjoyment of that scene because I'm like, oh, geez, it's, it's probably... The only time in the movie I'm taken back and surprised about something. The movie has a cold look at violence. Almost usually when the most violent parts of the movie are happening, there's not a lot of music. There's not a lot of sound. Like when guys are like running up out of the boat, there's like a guy's arm who's gone. That was and, and, and they too. say they say nothing. It just is. When Jesus is dragging his cross, no one's saying anything. They're just silent and watching it. When the people get trampled, like I was watching with my wife and she was just like laying down, like watching the movie. When the chair race happened, she like sat up and she was like, oh my God, like, is he going to be around? Like, what is that? Like, that was like most unpredictable part. I think it's also unpredictable is that it's predictable that Ben-Hur wins. Yes. But it is yeah. not predictable that Masala falls mm. and gets trampled and then ends up dying from it in a horrible way from like internal hemorrhaging and other people die and it's just nothing. I just think they want you to feel it. Like, there's no music during the chariot race, and that's, like, my favorite part about the chariot race is you just hear the hooves, like, trampling, like, the whips, the people screaming. Like, it's just all in your face. Exact. It just the man in the arena, and you get that full effect, especially with that great scene you're talking about, Greg, where they're following you're, like, in the chariot race. You're not in the chariot race. He, like, flips out of the chariot chariot at one point. That actually happened to one of the stuntmen, like, one of the director's sons, and they were, wanted to use it in the film, but they didn't. But they had the idea to do it to Charlton Heston. Like, it is just amazing. There's an urban myth that someone died in the chair race, which is not true. But those body, those dummies, they look so real to me. I'm Very like, real. I'm like, did someone die? Like, did someone really <laughs> die? Because there's no computer, and that looks real. <laughs> I, I kind of wonder, do you guys wish then, just her characterization of Judah, Mesla dies here, almost not as a direct result, really, of anything that Charlton Heston does. He has this huge, like, journey to, to go and get revenge on this guy and mm -hmm. revenge is obtained by, you know, he falls off a chariot and he's such an angry guy. Like you wish, I guess I personally wished that he would pull like a Mel Gibson payback or whatever. And he would just be like, I'm just going to go crazy. I'm actually going to get my revenge and kill. And then you could sort of evaluate from there. Was this worth it? Was it not worth it or whatever? They choose not to do it. Again, I think contributing potentially to why I was seeing him more as Jesus. What, I mean, what do you guys think of that? The whole driving factor of him going to the chariot race, though, is that anything can happen in the chariot race. So that There was, are no rules yeah, exactly. in the arena. His goal was for Masala to die during that race. But his actions don't indicate it. He's getting whipped. He gets the whip. He doesn't whip back. He just That's like, true. you know, it's like he falls. Then it's like. 
yes, anything can happen, but it's more like coincidence could happen that he could die. You know, well, that that's that's a 50s film, right? There's all these incidents of just like, oh, well, that's very convenient, right? He just happens to get his his nemesis killed. You say 50s really film, trying. and I say a mediocre film. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My favorite scene is at the end of the chariot race when Masala is in, like, the hold underneath the circus, and he is just... I mean, I don't like to use the word writhing because everyone knows it, but he's literally writhing. Like, he, like his organs are crushed, his ribs are crushed. Like, he's holding those straps to, like, keep his back straight. And like, he's waiting for He's just that. only waiting. Like, the surgeons might be able to save his life, who knows or not, but still not taking that chance is so insane to me. Like, the hate is, like, the only thing that's keeping him alive, which, again, is just, like... Ben Hur, that hate had been keeping him alive, and he's only keeping staying alive just so he can inflict more pain on Judah. And that pain that he's feeling, like the way he talks and the way he moves, and that other Roman is like holding his head. In lots of movies, people get hurt or they get like lose a limb or like they're sad, but I don't feel it as much. I really feel Stephen Boyd, Masala's pain and anger and his bodily physical harm, like the pain that he is feeling. Like if you want to be an actor, watch these like five minutes. If you want to get how pain feels and how you should be showing it, that is just, it is very harsh. He's, he's great in the scene, great in the movie. Am I missing something? Why does he hate Judah Ben-Hur so much? They're so close, and in the beginning, he sort of makes the switch, mostly because he chooses power over friendship, right? Like, I'm going to get to be governor here. But, like, as time passes, you can understand why the hate for Charlton Heston continues or why Judah Ben-Hur's hate is building. But why is Messala's hate building? What's What's the reason for that? It's almost like I would forget. If I had ruined somebody and I threw them into slavery for four years, I would think they're never coming back. And if they did come back, I wouldn't hate them. It would only be out of survival. That's the only reason I would do anything negative to them would be like, I'm about to get killed. I'm go- Oh, I better do something as a result. But he does have this like hate for him, and I don't know where that is driven from. I think he feels... I mean, there's a couple reasons that some people were giving. One is that he feels as if as much as... All the bad stuff that he's done to Judah, Judah deserved it for betraying him and choosing random, worthless Jews over himself. And then another reason some people point to is that he is a spurned lover. You know, oh, good point. That he, he wanted things to be the way they were, and they can never be that way now. And to clarify, spurned lover with Judah. With that Judah, is, yeah. That, and that, very that, that hatred... Or no wrath. No wrath, like Like a a, scorned woman. I mean, it doesn't have to be woman, but a scorned. It just, they're using woman as a stand in for lover. Mm -hmm. And that Gore Vidal, the guy who wrote a part of it and really believes in the relationship between Ben Hur and Masala, claims that that is the true reason. Like, why would, because other people that saw the film when it was viewed, producers and people were saying, why does he care that much? Just like you're saying. Yeah. And Gore Vidal, gave, he gave this reason as the main reason. And they said, oh, okay. It makes perfect sense. That's I like it. I mean, okay. How can anybody deny that there's not a massive gay theme then? I mean, that seems... The only other thing is the extreme Nazi Roman Jew hate and that he used him as an example. And that he doesn't care. That he doesn't care that much. Because when Ben-Hur comes back, he doesn't seem to do anything about it. Hmm. You know, he races against him and he's like joking with him about Jupiter and nothing that happens. But he's just competitive. I mean, I think the Spurn Lover is the most. Yeah, it makes sense. Most plausible. Yes, seemingly. Yeah. Very interesting point. Are there any big other things that you want to touch on? So one of my favorite movies of all time is Gladiator. So I've watched it many times. So one of the things that I noticed in this film is that there are a lot of things that Gladiator seems to have pulled from the film. Influence I mean, of the film, right? Yeah, exactly. You, all right. Okay. So, like, I think there's which pieces specifically are you? So, quite about? quite a few. The underlying plot of being betrayed by a friend and having your entire family sent or uh, killed or whatever it may be, return of the betrayed to the betrayer. I mean, there's even that big reveal to, to the bad guy. Like, you know, in Gladiator, Russell Crowe takes off his helmet to the emperor and reveals that he's still alive. Same thing happens in um, Ben-Hur with Masala, mm-hmm. right? 
I mean, down straight down to the chariot race. There's people that get run over in both of those movies in the chariot races. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, also Star Wars Episode One when they have that pod race, it's mm-hmm. almost mirroring the shots, like the different races in Sebulba, like the bad guy racer. He has flames that come out the side of his pod. You know, that's not legal, but there's no rules on the race, and there's right. places there aren't cameras. And when they swing through the middle, there's a, like a boom like a light that shows how many laps they've like gone the fish and just like the dolphins yep. that like flip down inside the chariot race a lot of movies copy this like how many times have you seen like a truck that has like spikes on the side of it yeah. like, oh, even it's, it's in greece, greece yeah. yeah it's in a million things but are those superficial impacts to film are those truly historical impacts to film can we say that this movie should be on the list or not i guess that's my question is like Yes, it's influential. Yes, other movies have copied it. But is it on the same level as, like, Citizen Kane influence? It's not. But is it even, like, on the same level as really... I I feel like I look at Ben-Hur. It's this big, epic movie. And I feel like I can point to five other movies that do what Ben-Hur's doing better. I, I don't understand. To me, it doesn't strike me as this movie that should be on the list. It's It's 71... It fell down. It started at 71 on the AFI list in 97. Fell down to 100. Isan and I were briefly having this conversation where I don't really think it should be on the list anymore. I don't think that its historical impact has been that great. I think more it was a cinematic masterpiece at the time, but over time has not stayed. And Isan, you think that it will never go off the list, but I think that it's going to go off the list on the 20th anniversary (laughs) in 2007, assuming they do that, you know? I mean, Arrow's point to it falling off was 71 to 100, but I would not be surprised and I would love if it stayed at 100 forever, as if it had a permanent spot like retiring of a jersey, like a retiring of the epic film. I just love its subtleties hidden in so much in your face. Like you say, the 1950s stuff, like it's a smashing you in the face with Jesus, with the lights on the actors, like the fake makeup on Hugh Griffith, but those like subtle themes are so powerful that continue on forever. Like the tolerance and religion between the Jews and the Arabs, that revenge theme, like the Revenant just came out and it is a revenge movie. And this is the revenge movie. I mean, besides like Hamlet, it is like the most famous revenge movie. If you ask someone and they seem at her, what's it about? That's what he's about. This to me doesn't even compare to like gone with the wind gone with the wind to me is a very epic movie. And I think that Gone with the Wind is so much, and I mean, Gone with the Wind is, what is it, number three on the list or something Mm -hmm. like that? I mean, so obviously, there's a lot more going for Gone with the Wind, and maybe it's not a fair comparison, but what does Ben-Hur contribute to film that Gone with the Wind didn't contribute 20 years earlier? I'd be hard-pressed to find anything substantial for me. It's not that it's a bad movie, it's just that I think with time, it will go away. I I, I think the only thing that could save it is the fact that it has the most Oscars. Now, I think that we realize that getting the most Oscars doesn't necessarily mean it's the best movie, as is evidenced by The Godfather getting three Oscars, and it's maybe the best movie ever made. Titanic getting Titanic 11. getting 11, and we'll get to that if it should be on the list or not whenever we review Titanic coming up. <laughs> Probably not. Lord it's of the Rings getting 11. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, which really is getting 11 Oscars for three movies for a 10-hour movie. That and they're getting no actor Oscars. It was like, yeah, nothing. I think that, but I think people do, as time goes on, they look back at the Oscars almost as much as they look at anything. And they say, oh, you won this Oscar, you won this. So I think that because this is won 11, even though the Oscars aren't maybe the most authoritative source for a great film, I think that it could be on the list because of that designation. It might save it. And what about the chariot race? If you had to say just, if you had to take scenes from movies, how would you rank Ben Hur in the top 100 that's having one of the 100 best yes. scenes in movies? Absolutely. Would you say top 25? Uh, the chariot race? Maybe. I mean, it might be that. I didn't, I haven't really thought about it. So I don't know. To me, a movie that has such an iconic, such a powerful, to me, top 10 best scenes ever. Even if the rest of the movie is terrible and this movie isn't the rest of the movie isn't terrible, I think it should stay on for having a, one miracle in your movie. Like most movies have zero, don't even have half of one. And this one has at least one. I think some of the other AFI movies have like 10 miracles, but at least this one has that one at least. I mean, I, I of course, think it's much better. It's a but. really it's a really good point. It may be I would then feel that way if 
the rest of the movie wasn't so long. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have 15 mm-hmm. minutes that's for this fantastic scene, mm-hmm. and then you've got three hours and 15 minutes of the rest of your movie, and it's like, maybe if the rest of the movie was two hours, 15 minutes, it was mm-hmm. a two-and-a-half-hour movie or something, then maybe that scene doesn't get lost. Maybe if that scene takes more of a focal point as the climax of the movie doesn't have an additional hour, then you're you're left on that like winning note. You're left on that like excitement. You leave the theater and you go, wow, I was just blown away. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe maybe those things help to me. But I do just see limited influence in the movie that I don't think. I just wonder if other films do it better. You know, I think every single movie on the AFI list will eventually leave the AFI list. False, hundred percent false. I hundred percent disagree. And one of them is definitely Ben Hur. Well, hang hang on, hear me out. So. One of the, and it may take hundreds, 200 years, 300, 500,000 of years. But one of the things that you're arguing right now is that contextually, this film, which was amazing at the time, is not amazing anymore. And why is that? Culture develops and evolves over time. The, the longer uh, a film has been out, the harder it's going to be for it to remain on that list because culturally and you know, just basically everything that was True at the time is eventually going to change. We should. But Gone with the Wind came out before this movie, so sure. I'm citing a movie that came out before this movie. And any movie that did something the first, how many years? Snow, Twenty years Snow, before Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is on the list, and I wonder if that movie will ever drop off the list because mm. the movie's not that great. But it's it represents Walt Disney. It represents animation, like a genre of film that doesn't exist without that movie, right? That's why Citizen Kane is number one. I mean, we'll talk about Citizen Kane when we get there. But Citizen Kane is boring. As Peter Griffin says in Family Guy, it's his sled. I saved you two long, boring, or I saved you three long, boring, boobless hours. It's like, it's a slow, slow movie, but it created everything in film. It created lighting. It created makeup, use of makeup. It created an aging actor that would go from, you know, young to old. It had, like... Twists and, uh, at the end. I mean, Star Wars will never. That could be a thousand years from now. Probably. Yeah, Star there Wars. are certain ones. I think you're right, but it has to be a movie that probably was the first. That super good idea though. Paul. And you have like to bank that. on the idea that people are going to remain academic about all these things. Like thousand years from now, is anybody going to care that Citizen Kane did X, Y, and Z? I don't care. Time? I don't care now that Citizen Kane did <laughs> X, Y, and Z. I guess you're right, Paul. I mean, when every movie is a superhero movie. I mean, is there a silent movie on the list? Jazz singer? That on the list, maybe? Or uh, something? Isn't the Charlie Chaplin City Lights silent? Is that on the list? Yeah. Okay. We'll so, I mean, eventually. <laughs> but, I mean, the argument could be made. You would then say, well, then the first film ever that is silent should be on the list. And I don't know if it is, right? Well, so, not. Uh, the General's on the list. That's silent, too. Paul, do you have a favorite scene? We didn't get you. Yeah. It was the rowing scene. The rowing scene. Talk rowing about scene it. is so good. All, all of the slaves and the, just the staring of Judah Ben Hur and Quintus when he comes in and is just like ramming speed, and yeah. he just he's so callous. And every all of these slaves are just. I mean, they're all emaciated except for uh, Charlton Heston. He looks good. <laughs> well. I mean, so uh, some of them have backs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they're traps and they're serratus like anterior. As they look at Jack. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah, yeah. are just like so thin. They're lean dogs. I didn't understand in that scene, at least when I was first watching it, I didn't really know how he just comes in, arbitrarily looks at this guy and is like, I'm going to be an asshole to this like one slave. Like one, why are you even down with this like riffraff? What do you give a shit that you're Well, they're surprised here? when he goes down there. Yeah. Like they are the and other he Romans. Sta- he stands down there. I- I'm wondering, is it only because he's looking for a chariot racer? Like later on, is that potentially that's, that was my only thought. Cause I remember I jotted it down as a note where I was like, this is terrible. Cause this makes no sense. But then later on I was like, okay, I guess it kind of makes sense. I I guess I could see that. What also just draws attention to Ben-Hur, even when you're watching it, even, I think if you just showed that scene, everyone else looks really done. Yeah. And he's the only person that doesn't look done. Which is, I mean, probably a testament to his character, right? Anyone else would be done. He's the only one that has faith still, believes in something more, continues on. He knows how long he's been there. Everyone else probably doesn't. You count to the day. Yeah, yeah. And... What I also like about it, Paul, is it has good one-liners. You're all yeah. condemned men. Row well and live. Uh, it just seems it, it's almost like I'm hearing it in Latin. How did that they the, film Roman, the boat fight scene? You mean Was like it, I think those were models? Were they models? They are models okay. in like a big uh, water pit that they had outside of okay. the studio because it didn't look 
super crazy. No, it looks, yeah. it looks bad. I mean, it, I wouldn't it, say it looks bad. I mean, it looks, it was probably cool in 1950. Inside the boat is sick, and that rowing, yeah. I can just imagine it. And what's so good is that he's not saying speed one, speed two. Like, he's saying speeds, and you're like, how much faster can they go? Like, yeah. when I thought they were done, I didn't know there was like two more speeds after that. <laughs> I'm like, this is insane. And people are like falling down, and I'm like, this is like, and I was like, I don't think I could do this. Like I, I was like thinking, and I'm like, and I, I'm like, I work out like five, six times a week. I don't think I could do this. Like this is like really crazy. The the boat scene is really good, and, and it prompts like a super interesting interaction between Charlton Heston and uh, the actor who plays Quintus. And Quintus, his character is someone that really interests me. Hmm. He just has a very um, worldly outlook, and his one liner like "hate keeps a man alive" was like. Yeah, that guy's kind of a badass. He yeah. is a good character. I think he does have a lot of depth to his character as it well. It would be better, like you said, Greg, if there was more of him. There was more of how him and uh, Ben-Hur got together, how they yeah. got along, how he became their son. Yeah. That would be a really good movie. Because I feel like his rejection of him later in the movie, just that could be another small climax and just isn't because yeah. I'm like, I don't care. You, The movie didn't show Like, you spent... 45 minutes introducing so many characters. I just don't care anymore. I mean, they're going to remake the movie this year. And if I made the movie, which everyone in like coffee shop in California wants to be a director. But if I was making the movie, I would make the it start out attack speed. And it would just be some guy in a boat rowing like this. Poosh, poosh, and everything that happened before that would just be flashbacks while mm. he's rowing. And then he meets Quintus Arius. Like they would be like they would be in a terrible battle, and then he would be in another boat, and then Quintus Arius would appear and ask him almost like little big man, like interviewing, and then he would be telling his story to Quintus Arius, and Quintus Arius says, Okay then. And then he they get together, they work together, he becomes their son, and then he goes back, and then there's a crazy chariot race. Yeah. I just think the rowing is so powerful, and if done today, it could be even more it's just sad because Charlton Heston will not be there, and I think he adds so much to it. Yeah, we just have Clint Eastwood do it. They look the same age now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Grades? Yeah, uh, grades, you want to go first or me, son? Yeah, you go. All right, so I give this So I can raise mine up if yours is too low. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, if we think about it, I mean, what the fuck do I know about film? I mean, let's be real here. (laughs) should preface that every time. Yeah, this is one of the the hundred greatest movies of all time, and I'm going to give it a C because I'm like, I really just don't. It's so middle of the road to me. It's not terrible. It's not great. Certain scenes are great, but overall, it's a flawed movie. It's too long. The acting, in general, I think that there's a lot of weak acting. I think that building of characters is weak. Overall, it's a C movie to me. I think it should not be on the list. I think it will fall off the list, and I will support it when it does. I gave it a B plus. I thought it was a good film, but there it was too long. The acting, there, there were so many elements that seemed to be like classic 50s tropey things that just bothered me and stood out that... It wasn't an amazing film. And I wasn't hooked or enraptured like I've been with some of the other films that we've watched. But like I said, by hour three, I was I was getting antsy. I was like, all right, let's get this done. Because the climax had already happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Isan? Yeah, I think I'll give it a B super plus, just right underneath the A minus. I mean, if it had some good editing, mm. cut out some other stuff, it could be an A double plus. I think it has huge potential. I think yeah. Greg's totally right when you have crazy expectations and it kind of lets you down a little bit. Yep. Because... I didn't remember all the terrible stuff from like five or ten years ago when I had seen it like a few times because my dad used to watch it all the time. I just remember the really powerful stuff like that part in the beginning that you're talking about is boring. I don't remember any of that. Like I don't I didn't, I didn't remember huge portions of the movie and like the end of the movie. I only remembered that his sister and his mom got cured. That's like all I remember about it. Yeah, but B plus for me. I be wish, super plus. Yeah, be yeah. super plus. Yeah. Make sure you. That's a special. Jot that down at home, guys. Yeah. Be super plus. That's uh, one step above B plus plus. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, why don't you throw out some recommendations then? Okay, yeah, definitely. I mean, Paul kind of already alluded to it, but if you love the revenge theme in this movie, you love the Romans, you love that ancient feel, I mean, Gladiator really is the best movie for you. 2000, best picture, Hans Zimmer music pounding in your head, Russell Crowe saying almost nothing. Again, the actor doing his best acting when there's no dialogue. That's the movie for you or if you want to stay back in time you want to go into 1963 you can always pick up stanley kubrick's spartacus Mm. which again is very similar rage roman you'll love it nice that's really solid greg why don't you 
You want to throw out some trivia for our next film next week? One last question, or one last question segment. <laughs> so next week, Paul will talk to you about what movie we're seeing, but uh, your trivia question for next week, and we'll talk about it at the beginning of the show, is uh, one of the actors simultaneously had the number one TV show in America, the number one movie in America, and the number one book in America all simultaneously. Incredible feat. Uh, it's very cool. So your trivia question is, who is that person? And this is going to give it away because next time we're doing Toy Story, so you can probably figure it out after after that one. But with that said, we'll catch you guys next week when we are doing Toy Story. And this is Paul. This is Isan. And this is Greg. And we're signing off. Catch you later.